Uh, welcome to the Mahogany Tower, where we talk about faith, we talk about science, we talk about uh, sociocultural identity, not necessarily in that order. Um, and as of late, I've been thinking a lot about thinking, which sounds, I don't know, a little bit like weird or philosophical. I don't know. Um, <laughs> meta. But, you know, as, 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 I mean, I don't know if I want to call myself creative, like as, as somebody who creates, right? Like you have to think a lot about the creative process. And so in my case, you know, maybe because of just the subject matter that I work with, or maybe because I'm a, a, a PhD student, um, thinking is such a huge piece of creating. Like I literally spend 70, 80% of the time kind of thinking. And then like the remaining 15 or 20% of the time, that's, that's kind of like the tail end where I actually like put it on paper into words. I create whatever, whatever. But I've been thinking a lot about thinking um, because it's so central to my particular creative process. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. And, um, you know, hopefully we, we can we can have like a, an engaging dialogue on that. So I don't know if I've mentioned this before, um, but there's just a special connection that you have with other PhD students, at least when you're a PhD student. Now, I imagine there's um, there's a similar notion for people who are studying medicine or law or dentistry or pharmacy or whatever. There's just like a mutual understanding, right, of the rigor of the program, their gripes over research, a bonding over the emotional and psychological distress of coursework. Um, and again, if you're a PhD student, there's there are all these like horror stories concerning the, the dissertation. Um, and as much as I feel that connection with other PhD students, other doctoral students, or even just people who do research in general, there's an even deeper sense of connection that I have with other doctoral students that are men and women of faith. Now, beyond everything I just described, there's the spiritual commonality we share as well. Now, indeed, you know, you spend as a, as, a, as a doctoral student, you can spend easily 70 to 80 hours a week reading, writing, researching and doing schoolwork. Um, and honestly, that can take a spiritual toll. It's definitely not for the faint of heart. Now, as you can imagine, then. I was really enthused when I had the opportunity, May 2018, to reconnect briefly with a sister in Christ in Philly. And she was, um, she was completing a PhD in education. Like many people I hadn't seen in a while, she asked me how school was going. And like many people I hadn't seen in a while, I told her I was getting absolutely dragged. And it showed, too, right? I was 25 pounds lighter. And I imagine I didn't look like my usual self. I mean, everybody kept asking about it. And in so many words, I was told I looked sick on many occasions. You know, a lot of my friends were, you know, a little bit concerned because it's like, yo, like, like, what's going on? <laughs> you just look bad. Um, but I had a short conversation with my friend, uh, but it was really uplifting. And over three years later, I still remember you know, the scripture she directed me towards. It was Daniel 1, verse 17. Um, so let's start with, with uh, some context of the, this passage and this uh, scripture. 
The book of Daniel opens with Judah's captivity, excuse me, Judah's captivity in Babylon. In short, the southern kingdom of the Jews, this was uh, Judah, was attacked and defeated by the Babylonians. Now, as was common practice at the time, the Babylonians took the Jews back into uh, Babylon as captives. King Nebuchadnezzar must have been an enterprising man because he decides to start a leadership development program. Three years in length. And his plan is to take the best and the brightest of the Jews, bring them to his palace and develop them as leaders. Now, there was definitely another element of this that concerned indoctrination, but, you know, I don't even have time to get into that. But following the completion of, of the king's, let's call it the leadership development program, quote, quotes, uh, these men would assume prominent roles of influence all across Babylon even though they're Jewish and they really should be in more of a minor role, like as street merchants or something like that. Um, so maybe I'll pause here. I like the book of Daniel for a lot of different reasons, but let me be clear in saying the following. The first chapter of the book of Daniel for sure parallels my current life as a PhD student in many ways. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar decides he's going to roll out this intensive leadership development program. I mean, it doesn't sound that different from a PhD. The King's program is three years in length, whereas a PhD program, depending on where you're in school and your special specialization, a PhD program could be four to eight years, you know, depending on dissertation topic and your advisor and how good they are and all this other kind of stuff. The King's program has education as the primary focus, right? Teaching them literature and language and more. A PhD program will have you reading, I don't know, 300 pages a week um, and socializing you to speak and think and interact the way academics and other scholars in your field do. Finally, all of this is paid for presumably by the King who has a vested interest in training future leaders. And in a PhD program, your tuition in full is generally paid for by the university. Now, albeit this may not be the case if your program doesn't have funding, but for lots of programs that have the funding, everything is paid for. Additionally, in my particular case, um, the school pays for dental insurance, vision insurance, medical insurance, and my student fees, actually. They cover that too. In fact, the only school-related thing that I've paid for up to this point and I will continue to pay for is parking. Um, since starting my PhD program, the only thing I've paid for is to park my car on campus and that's about $600 per year. So I will, by the grace of God, graduate with my PhD and the only thing I'll have paid for in my entire time in the program is to leave my car on campus. Now, finally, this, this program that the king is kind of developing or, or interested in creating, the program is in residence. As far as I can tell, everybody in the program would live in the king's quarters. In the same way, PhD students, at least in most cases, have to relocate to the university that they'll be studying at in order to participate in the program. So 
again, it would seem Nebuchadnezzar's program isn't that different from an advanced degree of some kind. Now, obviously, this is kind of prior to the educational structure that we have in our current world, but it does share a lot of similarities, right? It takes me back to when I was applying to my current university. Like Nebuchadnezzar, the dean of the PhD program wanted the best and the brightest. After accepting me, during my visit to the program, the dean told me, we received, you know, he told me the number, but I, I don't want to share that. We received a specific number of applications, a lot of applications. And he actually told me, you're one of our top three candidates. Much like Nebuchadnezzar, they saw something in me that made them want to bring me to the palace, so to speak. In fact, they were willing to invest, right, in feeding me and educating me for the next five years. They felt good about me as a student. There's much that could be said about this, right? But maybe I'll primarily highlight just two observations. And I appreciate um, Chandrika, that's my friend, for encouraging me with these thoughts during our very, very short conversation. Uh, much of what comes next was inspired by her uplifting words. So I definitely appreciate her for redirecting me, uh, you know, sharing with me, kind of building me up in this way. So this was kind of nugget number one. Shandrika uh, said, every day of your program, you need to pray for people to see something in you. The irony of my entire recruitment experience is that I was recruited as one of the top three applicants to the program, but my performance in year one was probably the worst of all the students that came in my year, literally. I mean, I was at the bottom of my class in almost every sense of the word. I think the only leg up I had was that English was my first language which wasn't true for most of my classmates. But other than having exceptional English, because English is literally my first language, so I hope I have exceptional English, I was skunking it up. I was doing a terrible job. It was awful. Now, for context, my particular experience was highly circumstantial. Most people will perform at an average level, doing most things. Because by definition... That's what the average represents. An average represents an expected value, right? But as much as we may hate the idea, we'll all have situations where our performance is lackluster. And we'll all have stretches of our career where our best performance is only average. I think this is exactly why Chandrika's comment was so profound to me. People can still see something in you even when there's not much to see at that particular moment in time, right? If you look at Daniel 1.4, we get a rough idea of what the king was looking for. So you can look at that for a second, right? But I'll, I'll kind of share some ex excerpts. People without blemish, right? Good appearance, 
I mean, whatever that means, I mean, I guess if you're supposed to be a leader, it helps if you're nice to look at. There's actually some research on that too. Like being attractive in many cases is positive for your career, but I'm getting a little bit distracted, right? So the king is looking for people without blemish, people who have good appearance, whatever that means, skillful in all types of wisdom, right? Endowed with knowledge and understanding. Competent enough to stand before the king. I think this criteria is intuitive enough, right? It makes sense. What we don't gather from this passage, though, is how King Nebuchadnezzar went about assessing any of these. I mean, did he administer an exam? Was there an interview of some sort? Maybe, I don't know, he sent them to the to the psychics for a palm reading. I mean, that probably wouldn't have been out of the ordinary, right? Or maybe King Nebuchadnezzar just trusted his gut, right? Maybe Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and, and, and Abednego, who I believe are actually um, referred to by different names in this particular text, but maybe Daniel and his friends were selected because they simply had the favor of God. And King Nebuchadnezzar trusted his gut, right? I mean, it wouldn't be the craziest thing I've ever heard of. A PhD program is hard to finish without support. I mean, you need an advisor who believes in you as a student and a researcher, right? You need faculty members who believe in the merits of your work, who believe in the merit of your research. You need a dean, right, who believes you're going to graduate from that program and elevate its prestige with all the amazing things you'll do professionally, right? That That's their stock in the game. That's their skin in the game. They want to graduate. They want to accept people that are going to elevate or maintain the prestige of their program. You need a department that believes that the program as a whole is better because you accepted an offer to study there and you walk through those doors. You need people to see something in you, right? Once people lose faith in you, you're in a really, really tough spot. People don't see anything in you. They cut their losses and they stop investing. People have to see something in you, right? I mean, I appreciate Chandrika <clears throat> directing me to this text because she was reminding me, even though I was skunking it up, right? Doing a terrible job. All I needed was for faculty members to continue to believe in me. I mean, I don't know how you feel about... um sports metaphors, but let's try this one. Um, it's kind of like that accomplished quarterback in college football. You know, maybe they go to the national championship, they get the Heisman, they have all these college accolades, highly decorated. And then they get drafted to the NFL and throws an interception the very first play of the game. And after that, in the next possession, he gets sacked. And fumbles the ball. And then after that, in the next possession, he gets a three and out, right? Doesn't even make it 10 yards. 
Now, admittedly, it's not unusual to have a tough transition to the NFL. That's true for lots of college quarterbacks, even the ones that were exceptional at the college level. But what you need, right, are coaches who continue to believe that drafting you as quarterback was 100% the right decision. Even if your first few possessions suck, right? Now I know what you're thinking. It's entirely possible that your performance has been nothing like mine. Maybe you've been exceptional since day one. Spotless performance, right? You know, uh, using the text from Daniel 1-4, without blemish. Rave reviews from everyone you work with. That's great, but it's not that simple. Now, even if you're performing exceptionally well, it doesn't matter if people don't see you as performing exceptionally well. Think about the glass ceiling, right? The glass ceiling has been studied across the social sciences and psychology, sociology, management, and maybe other topics I'm not super familiar with, but psychology, sociology, and management for sure. Um, women get into these high profile and prestigious occupations as doctors, as lawyers, you know, you know, working on Wall Street, all these high status, high profile positions do otherwise exceptional work, but they don't advance to managerial roles. How do we make sense of such a peculiar paradox? Now, there are many, many reasons why. I want to underscore that. There are multiple reasons why, and the existence of one explanation doesn't exist to the detriment of another. But one explanation is people don't see women as leaders even when they perform at an exceptionally high level at their work. I mean, we usually have a particular vision in our head of what a leader looks like, and it may not include people who are women. I mean, the bamboo ceiling works very similarly to the glass ceiling. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. I'll explain it in just a second. But again, this has been an area of research as well, both in social psychology as well as organizational behavior. I don't think they've studied this as much in sociology, but I'll need to look at that. But Asian immigrants come to the U.S., perform exceptionally well in school, frequently earn more than one degree, do an awesome job at work, but for whatever reason... They're overrepresented in lower levels of organizations and underrepresented in management, underrepresented in managerial roles. One of the reasons why is because, unfortunately, we usually don't see Asian Americans as leaders, even when they perform at a really high level at work. Again, we usually have a particular vision in our head of what a leader looks like, and maybe in this case, what a leader sounds like. In fact, one of my classmates studies that. <laughs> the word choice that you use as a leader actually matters, and it actually influences how people see and appraise your abilities and leadership, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, we usually have a particular vision in our head of what a leader looks like and what a leader sounds like, and it may not include people who are Asian, right? I think the implication is simple. When I say pray for people to see something in you, that isn't just a prayer for when you're underperforming or skunking it up, right? You could actually be doing a stellar job. In fact, I hope you are. But if people don't see something in you, it actually doesn't matter 
how well you're performing, period. People have to see something in you. And I appreciate Shandrika sharing that with me. She actually shared one other nugget, and this is, this is something I've been spending most of my time thinking about, actually. Um, so this is the one I want to share with you, right? Nugget number two. Shandrika says, pray to be brilliant. Shandrika says, pray to be brilliant. Now, on the surface, that may sound a little bit pretentious, but I don't think that's true at all. I mean, if you look at verse 17 of chapter one, which is exactly what Shandrika told me to do, the Bible actually says God gave Daniel and his friends learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Hey, I mean, that sounds good to me. A PhD is a very thoughtful exercise. You have to think, right? You have to think long and you have to think hard and you have to think a lot. And then you're right about all of the things that you're thinking about. And then people tell you all the reasons why what you're thinking doesn't make sense. And then you do it all over again, right? And you do that for four or five or six or seven or eight or maybe even nine years. Maybe you publish it or turn it into a book or whatever. And then you graduate, you get a job as a professor where you do the exact same thing. The difference will be now you're paid more money to do it. They compensate you with a salary for all of your hard thinking. And you're teaching other students how to think too. They might be undergrad students, they might be grad students or PhD students, but now you're teaching other people how to think as well. Again, I hope this doesn't sound pretentious, but you need a lot of like intellectual horsepower in order for this to work. Um, and again, I don't mean that in a, in a very kind of self-inflating, you know, arrogant, pretentious, braggadocious kind of way, but you do, it's a very intellectual exercise. You need a lot of intellectual horsepower in order for this to work. There are days when I don't even want to show up for school because I feel like I don't have the mental capacity to perform. Like I just, I don't have the headspace to do it. Right. And if I can't think in this line of work, I might as well not even show up. <laughs> I mean, that's the job you get hired or you get admitted to think and they're going to pay you to think. So if you can't think, then don't even show up, right? It's, 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 I mean, that's kind of the name of the game. Um, it's hard, right? But it's definitely doable. But it is hard. So there's good news and bad news. The good news is I absolutely 100% believe that I'm brilliant. I do. I think you have to. Really? I mean, otherwise, you run the risk of not being able to perform in this line of work. You have to believe that you're brilliant. You have to. The good news is I 100% believe that I'm brilliant. The bad news is I'm not always brilliant, right? I think most of the world subscribes to intelligence or brilliance, right, as a trait, you understand what I mean by trait, right? So for instance, think of personality traits. Our personality traits represent who we are. But more importantly, one of the things that makes personality traits personality traits is that they don't really change much over time. And obviously there's a combination of nature and nurture, but we do believe that personality traits are relatively stable traits 
And they don't necessarily change all that much over time. Certainly not in our adulthood. That is a fundamental assumption of personality. And I'm not a personality researcher, so I can't get into the weeds on that. But that's one of the things that makes a personality trait a personality trait. This is stable and it doesn't really change that much over time, at least in adulthood. I think a lot of people tend to think about brilliance the same way. Uh, just doubling back on that really quickly, that's one of the reasons why the whole Myers-Briggs thing, like from a scientific perspective, you're not measuring personality because personality doesn't fundamentally change in material ways throughout our adulthood. So if you're measuring something and it's changing over time, you're not really measuring personality. It might be something else, but it's not personality. Anyway, tangent. Um, I think of... <laughs> I think a lot of people tend to think about brilliance, you know, in a similar way to personality. Some people are just really brilliant, right? I mean, they got the juice. End of story. And if you don't have the juice, right, you just don't have it. I do think there's some truth to that. I think some people are very gifted and adept at learning. I think in um, very kind of thoughtful, creative, uh, they think in very thoughtful, creative, and profound ways. They soak up information and interpret it incredibly well. Sure, I think that's true to some extent, absolutely. But I much more strongly think of brilliance, right, as a system of thinking and behavior. I need to be thoughtful. I need to have insight, right? I need to identify puzzles. I, I, I should see um, paradoxes that may go unnoticed by others. I need to make connections that others haven't been able to make previously. I need to be articulate. I, I, I should be uh, able to beautifully express my observations in both written and oral communication. I need to be daring. I need to be profound. I need to radically take on challenges and arguments and explanations that others dismiss as too ambitious. I need to be brilliant, right? Today and every day. In that sense, I liken brilliance to creativity. And there's actually some research on that. Again, I don't have time to get into that, but there is some research on brilliance and creativity. Now, you may be a creative person, right? But that certainly doesn't mean that everything you do is creative. In truth, some things you do are probably a lot more creative than others. We may also erroneously assume that if everything you do is creative, that must mean you're a creative person. But if a creative person stops producing creative things, are they still creative? Hmm. So maybe it's better to think of creativity as what we do rather than who we are. Now I make an almost identical argument for brilliance. It's not about who we are. It's about what we do. In that sense, almost anybody has the capacity to be brilliant. 
it's not exclusive to people with lots of degrees or an education at an Ivy League school, etc. It's also not specific to people of a particular racial or ethnic group or gender identity, although this has certainly been a heated point of discussion in the past. A discussion that's beyond the scope of what we focus on here, but it does go without saying socio-historically brilliance has been associated with some groups of people more than others, chiefly white men. And there's some research that supports that. And now we're trying to make science more inclusive, although it does very much kind of have this elitist kind of exclusive undertone that excludes women and racial and ethnic minorities. That's a whole different conversation. But I'm committed to the notion that brilliance is what we do. It's simply a system of thinking and behaving. And if I can reproduce that on a consistent basis, people may assume that means that I'm brilliant. But in actuality, all I'm doing is reproducing a system of thinking and behaving every single day. Here's the kicker, though. I need God to help me do that. Right? If you look at Daniel 1.17, it says Daniel's learning, skill, and wisdom came from God. God enabled him and his friends to be brilliant. Without that divinely inspired brilliance, I'm not sure how things would have worked out for Daniel and his friends. So in my case, it's not like God gifted me with brilliance 28 and a half years ago, and now I never have to worry about brilliance ever again. On the contrary, I need God to enable me to be brilliant day in and day out. And he's the only one that can, right? He's the only one that can orchestrate this to make it work with him i can be insightful i can be creative i can be daring and provocative and articulate and thoughtful and radical and expressive and profound and function at a very high intellectual capacity but without him reproducing this system of thinking and behaving consistently is somewhat of a stretch yes i believe i'm brilliant but not because of who I am or where I go to school or what I research. I'm brilliant because God enables me to be brilliant. My prayer then is for him to allow for me to be brilliant on a consistent basis. I mean, otherwise, operating in this line of work is going to be rather difficult. I mean, I think there's lots of other interesting nuggets in Daniel, but I think this notion of brilliance from God and being spiritually minded in an unspiritual environment. You can read more about that in Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 16. Verse, yeah, verses 8 through 16. Um, but I think the, the, the notion of that, the, like those are the big themes that resonate the most with me as I read the book of Daniel. Um, I appreciate Shandrika sharing some um, great insight with me in a very, very short conversation. If you don't have some spiritually minded professionals in your network to chop it up with, and get support from when you're skunking it up. I mean, I think you're missing out. I mean, you got to get that like immediately. I mean, only God knows where I would be without it. I appreciate 
um, other scholars, other researchers, people like Mia, who I actually talked to very, very recently, people like Octavia, people like Ty Ty or Amanda or uh, Gabby, um, all PhD students trying to walk with God in this um, crazy academic journey. Uh, feel free to weigh in, but that's all I have for today. And um, I actually have some more things that I want to share about creativity coming up, coming up soon. So um, I'll keep you guys in the loop about that. Um, yeah. <music>